Paul is talking about the Jewish people, and he says, who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption. In the book of Exodus, the Lord actually calls Israel his son. And so they've been adopted just as we are adopted. Uh, but there's no nation like Israel. It's God's firstborn. And the glory, the Shekinah glory, the visible presence of God dwelt among the Israelites when they were wandering through the wilderness and in the temple. And the covenants, which we're going to be talking about this morning, and the giving of the law, that was through Moses, and the service of God, the temple service, and the promises. The promises are unconditional covenants. You see, there's two types of contracts, agreements, or covenants. One is unconditional, and it's not dependent on both parties. It's dependent on one party. Uh, the other party has to trust the first party, but the first party says, I'm going to do something, and they do it. A uh, conditional covenant is a deal. If you do this, I'll do that. If you do that, I'll do this. And so with that, we're going to start with the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1, 2, and 3. Praise God. Now, the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land I will show thee. That's like God telling you to get on 78 West, and I'll tell you when to get off. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Now there's three major provisions of the Abrahamic covenant, the deal that God made with Abraham. That is land, seed, and blessing. If you can remember those, you've got a handle on the Abrahamic covenant, which is foundational for all the other covenants. Land, seed, and blessing. And we see clearly in the first verse, God is telling Abraham he's going to go to a land. Now, later on in Genesis, he enlarges and expands upon this promise. It's sort of a progression of the revelation. But that's the promised land that God offered to Abraham. Now, I have a quiz, pop quiz question for you. If God promised Abraham the land, how come he never inherited it? I mean, God keeps his promises, amen? And he keeps his promises to whom he made them. But Abraham, all he owned was a small burial plot in Canaan, and he paid an exorbitant price for it. So how does Abraham possess the land? Maybe the church has replaced Israel. Turn to Matthew 8.11. And we're going to be going around a lot. Some of them are just reference scriptures, so you may not want to turn to every one if you're taking notes, especially. Verse 11 in chapter 8 of Matthew. 
And I say unto you that many shall come from the east and west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is the same thing as the kingdom of God. Matthew was just being culturally sensitive. His gospel was written to Jewish people, and Jewish people don't use the word God or the name of God for fear of profaning it. So he calls it the kingdom of heaven. Same thing as the kingdom of God. And it is the kingdom. It's when Jesus returns, sits on the throne of David, rules the nations with a rod of iron from Jerusalem. And initially there's peace and prosperity for 1,000 years. And so we are actually going to get to sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and have fellowship. And that will be in the kingdom. When we are, have our resurrection bodies from the rapture, when the kingdom begins after the tribulation, then we will have fellowship with Abraham. We, he will have inherited the land and we will live and dwell there. Okay. Land. Seed. And in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. In Hebrew, the word seed is what you call a collective singular. In other words, it could mean one seed or it could mean many seeds, like the word fish. Fish could be one fish or it could be many fish. And we learn in Genesis 22, 18. And God talks about the seed throughout Genesis and uh, 22, 18. And it's eventually conferred upon Abraham, I mean upon Isaac and Jacob. Genesis 22:18. And the angel of the Lord called unto Abraham out of heaven the second time and said, By myself I have sworn, saith the Lord. Very interesting. The angel of the Lord is swearing and he is the Lord himself. He's a manifestation, a Christophany of the Messiah coming to earth. And uh, that's the angel of the Lord, always, always synonymous with God. And the, and the saith the Lord, because thou hast done this thing and hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, Abraham was commanded to sacrifice his son Isaac. And this was the seed of promise because the seed would eventually develop into the nation of Israel, but there would be one specific seed passed on through single individuals that would eventually culminate and be fulfilled in the Messiah himself. That in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of heaven and as the sand which is upon the seashore. And that's basically the nation that's going to dwell in the land. And then he says, And thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies, the enemies of the, of the people of God will be defeated. And here it is. And in thy seed shall all nations of the earth be blessed. Now remember, sometimes seeds is a collective plural. In other words, it's talking about many people. But sometimes it's only talking about an individual. And Paul has some uh, exegetical comments on this verse in Galatians 3. And I'll go ahead and read it to you. Galatians 3.16 And that, now to Abraham and his seed 
where the promise is made. And he saith not and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Messiah. And so Paul is referring to this particular verse where it says, in your seed all the, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Paul was a Hebrew scholar, he was a rabbi, and he was closer to the original text. And he has that to say about this verse, that that individual seed that blesses all the nations is Jesus himself. And that's the most important aspect of the Abrahamic covenant because it has to do with salvation. Okay, I want to talk about land, the land a little bit. Turn to Genesis 15. We'll be mostly in Genesis. Genesis 15. Eighteen. No, that's not it. What, what the Lord does is he actually lays out the borders of the promised land. It's either in 13 or 15. Here it is, 15. 15, 18. And at this point, God has made a covenant with Abraham, and Abraham makes a sacrifice too, because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission for sin, and covenants are sealed with blood quite often, saying, and in that same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, unto thy seed, this is the nation, have I given this land from the river of Egypt, that's one of the tributaries of the Nile, onto the great river, the river Euphrates. Well, that's a large, huge swath of land. That's big, and those are the borders of the promised land. Now, back to a little, a little back in Genesis 15. Abraham is a little concerned here, and he actually falters in his faith. And he, ha he does a few times in the book of Genesis, but God's grace is sufficient. You are always saved by grace through faith throughout the scripture from Genesis to Revelation. It was always through grace by faith that you were saved. It's an unconditional covenant. God takes the initiative in revealing himself and we simply respond. And so Abraham knew that God had promised him a specific individual, a son. And Abraham, in verse 2 of chapter 15, says this. And Abraham said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless? And the steward of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham said, Behold, to me thou hast given no seed, and lo, one born in my house is mine heir. So Abraham is suggesting God needs a little help for him to have progeny, and he, he offers... Eliezer, his head steward, as the one who inherits the promise. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thy own bowels shall be thy heir. So God promised Abraham that he would have a child, a son, that would be the heir of his legacy. And here, verse 5, And he brought him forth abroad, and said, Look now toward heaven, and tell the stars if you be able to number them. 
And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. So his seed would be innumerable. Be very many people. And now, verse 6 is the clincher. Sorry, I keep taking drinks. I have uh, allergies. And he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. God imputed the righteousness of the Messiah through his sacrifice on the cross onto Abraham. This is where Abraham got saved because he believed. He believed in the promise of God. He believed in the word of God. He trusted the Lord to bring his promises about. Of course, he falters a little later, but it's by grace through faith. Amen? Okay, so land, seed, and blessing. Back to Genesis 22, where I mentioned that the seed would bless all the families of the earth, and that is the uh, fulfilled in the Messiah himself. That's the seed aspect. So land and seed. Seed would be the nation and also the Messiah himself. And God makes other covenants with Israel afterwards just to reinforce to the people that he's still going to fulfill the unconditional covenant he made with Abraham. And so again, in my seed shall all nations of the earth be blessed in 22.18. And that's the Messiah himself. 13.16, Genesis. And I will make thy seed as the dust of the earth, so that if a man can number the dust of the earth, then shall thy seed also be. 15.5. See, I just want to reinforce this. Uh, it's not only valuable for Jewish evangelism, but it's valuable as a foundation for understanding the covenants and scriptures. The Abrahamic covenant is the foundation of all the covenants. Uh, where was I? Can't hear you. 16? Okay, forget 15.5. We already did it. 17. I have in my notes. I just, you know, when I do the message, I want to be spirit-led. Uh, and so sometimes he, go, he has me go a different way. Amen. So 17 verses 1 and 2. And when Abram was 90 years old and nine, the Lord appeared to him and said to Abram, I am the almighty God. Walk before me and be thou perfect. Well, the only reason he could be perfect was because of God's grace. Amen. And the next verse, And I will make a covenant between me and thee and will multiply thy exceedingly. Praise God. So we did land and seed, and we actually did blessing because God said, through your seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed, and that's fulfilled in the Messiah himself. Now, there were several other provisions of the Abrahamic covenant. One of them is all would ultimately be blessed. We already went over that. He himself would be greatly blessed. His name would be great, and it certainly is. He would have progeny, a son, and God promised that this son would come through his wife, 
Sarah in Genesis 17, 16. And I will bless her and give thee a son also of her. Yea, I will bless her and she shall be the mother of nations. Kings of people shall come of her. To bless Israel is to be blessed. To curse Israel is to be cursed. We already read that in the Abrahamic covenant, but that part of the covenant is passed down to the nation. And what better way to bless the Jewish people than to tell them about Jesus? Amen? Turn to Numbers 24.9. This is where we see that the blessing and cursing in the Abrahamic covenant which was confirmed upon Isaac and Jacob, is also for the nation. And you notice, I mean, God's promises, he fulfills to whom he made the promise, not somebody else. Some people say with the replacement theology, well, God promised a horse and carriage, and instead he gave us a Cadillac. So, Numbers 24.9. He couched... God is talking about Israel here. He lay down as a lion, and as a great lion, who shall stir him up? Blessed is he that blesseth thee, and cursed is he that curseth thee. And that's talking about the entire nation. God prophesied that, oh, and also that's borne out through history. Any nation that has cursed the Israelites has been cursed themselves. And I think this is one of the reasons that God staves off judgment for the United States is because we're, we've been supporters, avid supporters of Israel. Also, we've sent out many missionaries and we're involved in evangelism. And I believe prayer is staving off the judgment. So God prophesied in Genesis 15, 13, the Egyptian bondage. Genesis 15, 13. You can turn there. Now, why would God send the Israelites to Egypt? Let's go ahead and read it. Verse 13, And he said unto Abram, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they will afflict them four hundred years. And also that nation whom, whom they shall serve, Egypt, was supposed to bless the Israelites. Instead, they cursed them. They went outside of their bounds. God used them to discipline the Israelites, but they went, they exceeded that. And that nation whom I will judge, and afterward they shall come out with great substance, talking about the Israelites. Why would God send the Israelites to Egypt? Well, we have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And through Jacob, God raises up 12 sons who are going to inherit the blessing. And only one of the sons can be the inheritor of the blessing of the seed. And that is Judah, not the other 11 sons. And uh, after, afterwards, God now would raise the covenant nation that would come from these covenant people. So why would God send them to Egypt? I don't know. Um, <laughs> well, as you read through Genesis, you notice that uh, the, the Israelites were having relations with the Canaanites. And that was a no-no. The Canaanites were involved in idolatry, infant, were infant 
sacrifice, uh, prostitution, temple prostitution, you name it. And God was going to use Israel to judge them. And he didn't want the Israelites picking up any of their habits, which was just the 12 sons and their sisters at this point. He didn't want them to become like the Canaanites. And they were starting to have relations with them. Uh, in one case, a, a, uh, a son was born through the union between one of the Israelites, Dinah, and a Canaanite prince. And if you read the story of Judah, you'll notice that eventually he has a seed through a Canaanite woman. And get this, this Canaanite woman is one of the progenitors of the Messiah. Isn't that beautiful? God uses everybody, all the people of the earth, even in the sea to bring forth the Messiah. God's not interested in racial purity. He's interested in spiritual purity. Amen. So God sent them to Egypt to preserve the context of Israel, to nurture them, feed them, raise them up into the covenant nation, and so that they wouldn't pick up the habits of the Canaanites. The Egyptians didn't like Israelites as a rule. They didn't have fellowship with them. They didn't like shepherds. It was like, uh, it was looked down upon, like being a garbage man, for instance. I always thanked the garbage men, but it, they always condescended towards the Israelites because they were the garbage men. Other nations would come forth from Abraham. I think we already read that. And Abraham's name would be changed from Abram, which means exalted father, to father of a multitude. And Sarai, which means my princess, her name was changed to Sarah, the princess. She was the first Jewish American princess. <laughs> okay, so... Anybody know what the sign is? The seal of the Abrahamic covenant? Just like the seal of the Noahic covenant is the rainbow. God promised unconditionally that he would never destroy the earth again with a flood. So what is the sign of the Abrahamic covenant? The sign is circumcision. But other countries did circumcision, other nations, but it was circumcision on the eighth Day. That was what was unique about the Israelites. And the Abrahamic covenant is foundational for three more unconditional Jewish covenants. And God affirms the Abrahamic covenant that indeed he's going to fulfill it and instituted these additional covenants. And the people that are involved in the Abrahamic covenant, as we've seen, is Abraham, the Israelites, and all the people of the world. The first covenant I want to look at is the New Covenant. So turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah 31. The New Covenant is the covenant that we are in with God. And so I suggest you read the fine print concerning that covenant. The New Covenant. Genesis, uh, I'm sorry, Jeremiah 31, verse 31. This is a very important passage. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, 
And when that word behold is there, it's a tip-off. It's likely to be a prophetic promise. God wants to get your attention. That I'm, behold, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Who's the new covenant promised to? People say the church. Let me keep reading. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them. That's the covenant of Moses. That was the one conditional covenant. It, laid, it spelled out the conditions for occupying the land. The Israelites never lost possession of the land, but for disobedience, they would be cursed. For obedience, they would be blessed with crops and families and children and so on and so forth. But if they were disobedient, one of the part of the chastisement was expulsion from the land. But they still owned the land. After those days, after the days of the Mosaic Covenant, 613 commandments. Mm. Notice, it's called the Law of Moses not the laws of Moses. The law of Moses is an organic whole. There are 613 commandments, not 10 plus uh, 603. So to say, well, I keep the 10 commandments, it's, it's really, uh, unless you're keeping the Sabbath the way Moses said to keep the Sabbath, and I really doubt any of you are, uh, that's the only one of the Ten Commandments that we don't need to keep. But the others are part of the New Covenant contract. God gave new laws on the New Covenant. For instance, he raised the Old Covenant to a new level. He said, uh, he said I give you a new commandment on this day, that you love one another as I have loved you. That's, much, that's different than love your neighbor as yourself. It's much more difficult to love somebody the way the Lord loves them. And so the New Covenant is a whole set of rules, but many of them are similar to the Mosaic Covenant. And the Nine Commandments are, but not the Sabbath. The Sabbath has been done away with. It's been rendered inoperative. The church, who is in replacement theology, says, oh, well, now the Sabbath is Sunday. It's not biblical. It was always Saturday. And like I said, the Seventh-day Adventists claim that they keep the Sabbath. I ask them, how'd you get to church today? Oh, I drove. Well, that breaks the Sabbath because you're starting electricity and you're driving. You're not supposed to work or start a fire on the Sabbath. In fact, the emphasis of Sabbath observance in the Bible is not gathering together for corporate worship. The emphasis is rest. Rest at home. You're not supposed to go a far distance from your home on the Sabbath. So let's keep reading about the new covenant, which is promised to the household of Israel. And it's not like uh, the Mosaic covenant, which is the old covenant. The new covenant ultimately replaces the old covenant. When I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke while I was a husband to them. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, after the Mosaic covenant, I will put my law, my instruction, my Torah, 
Torah is not necessarily monolithic. It's not frozen. We're not the frozen chosen. So when God says he will put his law in the inward heart, it's talking about his instruction. Uh, God promised a new covenant, and in Isaiah, God promises that the, the nations of the earth would yearn for the Torah, <clears throat> for the Torah of the Messiah. That's much different than the Torah of Moses, in that it's much more demanding. So if you think you have it easy, because you don't have 613 commandments, you're wrong. The new covenant commands us to love one another as God loved us, also to do evangelism, and Paul says the fruit of the Spirit is part of the covenant against which there is no law, Paul says. Okay, let me keep reading Jeremiah 31. But how do we get the new covenant if it's promised to Israel? What about the church, preacher? Well, Paul explains in Romans 11 that the nations have been grafted in to the olive tree. The olive tree is the promises of God, and the owner of the olive tree is Israel. And Paul uses an illustration of an olive tree, and he says that the, the, the branches were broken off because of unbelief, but there's always a remnant of Jewish believers, and that we could be grafted back in, those of us from the nations. And then he says, I can graft the natural branches in as well. Very easy. Now, verse 34. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them on to the greatest of them, saith the Lord. So when the millennium begins, the kingdom everybody will be a believer. And this is specifically talking about Israel. Anyone, any Israelite who survives this tribulation will become a believer at, when, at the return of Jesus. The scriptures say that all Israel will be saved. Not, that's not all generations of Israel. Two-thirds of the Jews perished during the tribulation. That's pretty harsh. That's worse than the Holocaust where one-third perished. And so... They will be saved. God's going to pour out his spirit in a new and special way, recorded in Joel chapter 2. And they will come to believe in Jesus. Um, look at Hosea 5. Hosea 5, verse 15. This is a very exciting verse. They're all exciting. Amen? God is speaking. He says, I will go and return to my place. Well, in order for God to return to his place, that would mean he had to come in the first place. And that's what he did in the person of Jesus. And Jesus said he would not return until the Jewish people asked him to. Of course, God knows the exact time when Jesus is going to return, but God not only ordains the ends, he ordains the means. And the Israelites or the Jewish people will ask the Messiah to return. 
until they acknowledge their offense. Notice offense is in the singular. There's one specific offense of the Jewish people that God is interested in, um, in addressing, and that's the, the error of not accepting Yeshua. That's the Hebrew way to say Jesus, uh, and the kingdom that he offered. Remember, it was, it was the majority, not everybody. The leadership led the nation astray. And seek my face in their affliction. So the Israelites in affliction will seek the face of Jesus. Jesus said he wouldn't return until the Jewish people say, Baruch habab l'ashem Adonai. Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. That's said, as a wed said in a wedding for the groom when he comes up and then for the bride when she comes up. And so until they acknowledge their offense of rejecting the Messiah, God will, will not return. So when we're involved in Jewish ministry or Jewish evangelism, from our perspective, we're hastening the, uh, the return of the Lord. And in their affliction, they will seek me early. Um, look at Zechariah 12. We're talking about the national salvation of Israel, which is actually part of the New Covenant. I'll show you other scriptures. And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplications, and they shall look unto me whom they have pierced. And who's the me? It's God. God is talking in the first person, and that's Jesus whom was pierced. Amen? Okay. Turn to Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36, 26. Eh. We can start from 23. Ezekiel 36, 23. And I will sanctify my great name, which was profaned among the heathen, which ye have profaned in the midst of them. And the nations shall know that I am the Lord, saith the Lord God, when I shall be sanctified in you before their eyes. For I will take you from among the heathen, the nations, and gather you out of all countries, that's the land and the nation, and bring you into your own land. Notice how similar it is to the Abrahamic covenant, which is the foundation for the for other three unconditional covenants. God is unconditionally saying he's going to bring Israel back to the land. Then I will sprinkle clean water upon you, and ye shall be clean from all your filthiness, and from all your idols will I cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. That's part of the deal of the new covenant. The Holy Spirit indwells us and baptizes us. All Christians are baptized by the Holy Spirit. There's no such thing as a second-class Christian. You can look at uh, 1 Corinthians. You don't have to turn there because I might not be able to find it. 1 Corinthians 12, 
verse 13. Okay. For by one spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one drink into one spirit. So Jesus broke the middle wall of partition that was between the Jews and the Gentiles. A lot of people use that to show that God wants equality, and he does. But what was the obstacle between Jews and Gentiles in Ephesians 2 that they couldn't have fellowship together? It was the law. Look at it. Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who are sometimes far off are, are made nigh by the blood of Christ. Hallelujah. For he is our peace who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. And what is that middle wall? Having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace. And so the law kept Jews from having relationships from Gentiles. So the, the law has been rendered inoperative by the Jewish Messiah, and we partake of the new covenant. I will put my spirit within you, and I'm back in Ezekiel, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and ye shall keep my judgments and do them. And ye shall dwell in the land. See? Land, seed, blessing. I gave to your fathers. And you shall be my people. And I will be your God. Now today is Palm Sunday. So I want to address that. At the last supper, the last Passover supper, Jesus took the third cup, the cup taken after dinner, and said, this cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. The very new covenant promised to us by God through the prophet Jeremiah when he said, Behold, the days are coming. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them. But this is the covenant, after the days and law of Moses, that I will make with them. I will put their law within, I will put my law within them, and upon their hearts will I write it. And Jeremiah 17 tells us what was written on the Jewish people's hearts in the days of Jeremiah. Jeremiah already considered the old covenant broken in Jeremiah's time. Jeremiah 17.1 The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron and with the point of a diamond. It is graven upon the table of their hearts. So sin was indelibly written on the hearts of the people. God had to give them a new heart. So he made a new covenant, put his spirit within them, and wrote his instruction upon their hearts and regenerated the Jewish people. And so Jesus rode into Jerusalem a week before the crucifixion. And that is a fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9. 9. Take a look at it. 
Zechariah 9 9. Interesting how the new covenant has so much to do with Palm Sunday. Amen? Zechariah 9 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass, and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. Jesus knew very well he was fulfilling prophecy by riding into Jerusalem on a colt. And the people knew it too. They were very excited. And the scribes and the Pharisees were very upset that the crowd was making so much noise. And they said, tell them to be quiet. And Jesus said, if they were quiet, the very stones would cry out. And so he rode into Jerusalem on a cult and um, instituted the new covenant the week later. Oh, yeah. What were the people waving on that particular Sunday? Palms. Why? Why palms? Oh, because it was Palm Sunday, right? <laughs> It was Passover. Now, traditionally, the Israelites would wave palm branches on Palm Sunday. Not on Palm Sunday, <laughs> but on the Feast of Tabernacles. And they connected the Feast of the Tabernacles with the coming of the kingdom. Turn to Zechariah 14. Verse 16. And it shall come to pass that everyone that is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem, say it's at the end of the tribulation, shall go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of tabernacles. So the people were witnessing and identifying that Praise God, the Messiah is here. He's going to overthrow the Romans, take the yoke of Rome off of us. The kingdom is coming. Let's wave the palm branches. And unfortunately, he was rejected. The leadership uh, led the nation astray and uh, rejected the kingdom itself. And so that's why we wave palms on Palm Sunday. You see, the Jewish people thought the kingdom was about to appear. Amen? Amen. Okay. Uh, do we have more time? Yeah? You want more? <laughs> All right. Let's look at the land, unconditional land covenant found in Deuteronomy 29. Where is it? This is an unconditional covenant, which I can't find in my notes, and I really do want to use the notes. So let's start from the beginning. Deuteronomy, here it is, just like that. See that? The land covenant is given in Deuteronomy 29, verse 1. 
And we'll notice something very interesting about God reinforcing the fact that the Israelites have promised the land unconditionally. It's not to be fulfilled by somebody else, but by the Israelites. Deuteronomy 30, 29, verse 1 says, these are the words of the covenant which the Lord commanded Moses to make with the children of Israel. Sounds like the covenant of the law, right? Which was made from Mount Sinai in the land of Moab. The Israelites were about to enter the land. Moab is right on the border of the land beside the covenant which he made with them in Horeb. The covenant in Horeb was the giving of the law. This is a separate covenant for the conditional covenant of the law. This is a different covenant fulfilling the land aspect of the Abrahamic covenant. And its provisions are laid out in chapter 30, verses 1 through 10. And it shall come to pass, whenever you hear that, you know it's going to be a prophetic announcement. It shall come to pass when all these things are come upon thee, the blessings and the curse which I have set before thee, that's the blessings for obeying the law and the curse for disobeying, which uh, as well as not getting rain in its season and crops and children, they would be expelled from the land. They, didn't lose, they never lost ownership of the land, and that's what this covenant elucidates on. Thou shalt call them to mind the blessing and the curse among all the nations whither the Lord thy God hath driven thee. See? Moses already knew that the Israelites were going to break the covenant and be dispersed. Verse 2, And shalt return unto the Lord thy God. That word return in Hebrew is tshuv, which means repentance. So the Israelites are going to return to God in repentance and shall obey his voice according to all the command that I command thee this day, thou and thy children with all thine heart and with all thy soul that then the Lord will turn your captivity. He will bring them back and have compassion upon me. He will bring them back to the land uh, with, at the second coming, subsequent to the second coming, and will return. I asked an Israeli to take out his Hebrew Bible and read that verse and tell me who is returning there. Yes, the people are repenting. They're returning unto the Lord. But this is a strange structure. God is going to have compassion upon thee and will return. He said, why, it's the Lord. This is the second coming in the covenant of the land, the land covenant. It's commonly referred to as the Palestinian covenant, but we try not to use that term. It has other meanings. Verse 4. And that's something, the second coming. If any of thine be driven out unto the uttermost parts of the heaven, from thence will the Lord thy God fetch thee, and from thence will he fetch thee. <laughs> okay, look, look at Matthew 24. A lot of people who aren't pre-tribulation say this verse means that the rapture happens at the end of the tribulation when the Messiah returns. But they don't understand the verse. Matthew 24, verse 30. I'll start with 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened and the moon shall not give her light. 
and the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in clouds of heaven. That's the Shekinah glory of God, the visible presence of God, with power and great glory. And he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect. That's where the misunderstanding comes with that word elect. Elect, in this context, at this point in time, is talking about the elect Jewish people. Now, I know Paul uses the elect to talk about all who would be saved among Jews and Gentiles. But in the Old Testament and the Gospels, the elect talks about Israel shall gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Now, let's close, because we notice that uh, the people rejoiced that the Messiah was here, and yet they fell away when there was trial and tribulation. He wasn't what the kind of Messiah that they expected. But we know the Messiah, and even though most of the United States of America doesn't know the Messiah, we still know him and need to prepare for his resurrection. And that's what Palm Sunday is all about. It's about preparing ourselves for the good news. When Yeshua, Jesus, openly displayed that he had triumphed over sin and death. Thank you.